Well, this morning we're going to get back into the book of Romans, and so take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 12. We've been working through this list of Christian distinctives, starting in verse 14, and we've been working through those all the way down to verse 21. And as you're turning, I want to just ask you to think back to a time in your life where you were in a situation where someone has sinned against you. Someone sinned against you in some time in your past. I I don't know what it is for you. I, I think all of us can think back to a time when someone has sinned against us and we were tempted or maybe we did react in sinful anger. We got angry back. And I just want to take you back to that moment in your mind. Remember that time. Think back to that moment. Uh, you, you know what you feel in those moments when someone sins against you, don't you? Uh, you feel that sense of like intense feeling and it just explodes inside of you when someone has hurt you and sinned against you. Maybe it was a moment on the freeway. <laughs> Maybe it's when you were, you know, when you've tried to get some help from a customer service line. Uh, maybe it's Maybe a little closer to home, maybe you've sinned against your spouse or they've sinned against you at some point and been unkind or unrighteous against you. Maybe for you kids, it's with your parents when your parents sinned against you in anger or they've been unkind or unfair. And if you've ever been in a situation where someone treats you with evil, you, you know that feeling, that, that moment your adrenaline spikes, you get flushed, right? Everything feels warm. Your face feels hot. There's this stress and anger and hurt that rises up in your heart, all of that that happens inside of us. And I've been there. I know what that feels like. I was thinking, I, there's just countless times that this has happened to me, and, and you feel all of that happen, and the world would say that what you ought to do at that moment is to get even. They would tell you to get even, to pay back evil for evil, that you should have your paybacks. But the Bible tells us the opposite. It tells us not to do that. It tells us not to repay evil with evil. And this lack of paying back evil for evil is a powerful witness to God who works in us. You probably have heard the story of Jim Elliott and his wife Elizabeth. Jim Elliott, they're missionaries to the Aka Indians in, in the Amazon rainforest. Jim and, some, and five, uh, four other guys go out in a plane. They land the plane. The Indians spear them to death on the beach of the river. And you would think, if your husband's been killed, what do you do? You would, you would be angry at the people that did it, and you would just leave. But what does Elizabeth Elliot do? She takes her newborn baby, and with her friend Rachel Saint, who was the sister of Nate Saint, who was also killed, they hiked back into the jungle and went directly to the Indians who had killed her husband. And they began to share the gospel with them, and their lack of retaliation stunned the tribe. They couldn't believe that they were doing this, and... Because of that, they were allowed to preach. And as of 2006, a third of the tribe there are baptized believers. That is the power of God working through this principle of non-retaliation. Now, you might, you might not have had a situation like that. But since all of us have been in this position of being sinned against, Paul included, I think, it's important that we think about how to handle ourselves as Christians in moments when this happens to us. And really, this next section in chapter 12, from verse 17 all the way down to verse 21, is one cohesive thought. It's one idea about how we respond to unbelievers. And so, what I want to do first, under point one, is look at Paul's purpose for this whole section. Uh, Now, you know we go slow, and so this is going to be three weeks of sermons, but this whole section here is one cohesive idea. Follow along with me. Look at verse 17. 
Paul says, never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him, and if he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. I think this idea, again, these are Christian distinctives. What's being communicated here is, I think, one of the hardest things to do as a Christian. This is a remarkable grace of God when any of us responds in this way. And Paul packages it very nicely. If you look at verse 17, he says, never pay back evil for evil to anyone. And then in verse 21, he sort of summarizes the whole section. In verse 21, he says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And then in verses 19 and 20, he actually unpacks sort of the how or the why of what that looks like. So I want to show you this flow of thought in Paul's mind. Look at point A, understanding the flow. Now what you see is there are three statements here. Okay? Look at verse 17. There's a, there's a negative statement in verse 17. Do not pay back evil for evil. Never do that. Right? That's a negative statement. Paul, Paul isn't, it's not that it's a negative thing, but Paul is speaking in the negative. It's a don't do something. Don't do this thing. Don't repay evil for evil. Never do that. Right? And then if you look at verse 18, notice what he says. It's a positive statement. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. So you have this positive idea. So you have a negative idea. Don't, don't repay evil for evil. And then he says positively, be at peace with everyone, right? And then in verses 19 and 20, he summarizes the way how we ought to do this. And Kevin will preach that in two weeks. <laughs> Kevin's going to be covering that section. It's complex, so pray for him. That's a tricky text there where it says heap burning coals on his head. So now here's the question. Why would Paul say this in so many different ways? Why would he explain a negative and then a positive and then the how? Why would he do this? Why would he structure it this way? And I think the answer is that he's anticipating that you will face pain. You will face pain. Life is going to be hard. And he wants to prepare us to respond rightly to those situations of pain that will come into our lives. They absolutely will. And this is preparatory for our souls so that we will respond rightly when that happens to each one of us. And so look with me at point B, the promises of pain. Promises of pain. All of us, every one of us, is going to suffer at the hands of unbelievers and believers alike. People hurt us. You, know, you hear people say sometimes, I'm, I'm about people, right? The problem is that people disappoint us, don't they? People hurt us. The Bible, the Bible is full of promises that people will hurt you. It's full of promises. Jesus said in John 16, in the world you will have trouble. <laughs> that's, that's an absolute statement. In the world you will have trouble. He said in Matthew 5, 11, G, uh, Stephen read it for us this morning, blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kind of evil against you because of me. He says, blessed are you. This will happen to you. He told his followers that they would have to take up their cross and follow him. What's a cross? It's an instrument of death. Take up your electric chair and follow me effectively. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1.5 that the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance. The, the, the scriptures are full of these promises. In fact, turn to Acts 14 with me. 
Look at Acts 14. Again, encourage you to turn. It's always good to see it for yourself. In Acts 14, we have this story of Paul being stoned. He, in verse 19, it says, Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having won over the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. So Paul's been stoned effectively to death. But while the disciples stood around him, he got up. You know, if, you, if, you've, if you've been nearly stoned to death, what do you do? You leave. What does Paul say? What does it say? He got up and he what? He went back in the city. <laughs> They've tried to kill you. You're a bloody mess. And he walks back into the city. And the next day, he went away with Barnabas to Derbe. And after they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith. And then saying this, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Isn't that amazing? The encouragement that Paul was giving them was not, things will be okay. It'll all work out in the end. You're going to be all right. You'll, you'll get healed. Things will be better. No, what does he say? Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. As a Christian, you're signing up to die. Literally, we're signing up to die. Paul tells, tells Timothy, 2 Timothy 3.12, all those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. We will. And Paul wants us to prepare for that suffering. And so he instructs us about what we ought to do when evil is done to us. Of course, he could have just said, well, love your neighbor, right? That, that summarizes all of this. If you're just loving your neighbor, no matter what they do to you, you can love them in response. But knowing that we need more clarity on that, he gives all of this to us. And so let's look first at the negative side back in Romans chapter 12 and verse 17. The negative, and this is point two, a pattern for reaction, a pattern for reaction. Now again, this is fascinating because in a sense, Paul is sort of asking you to put yourself in a situation where someone has done evil to you. He's asking you to preempt a situation in your mind so that then you're able to think through how you ought to respond or how you ought to react in that situation. He wants you to think ahead, right? Think ahead. How would I react if someone were to do something evil or something mistreating against me? And he commands us here in point A, Paul's command. What's interesting in this verse is that there's actually two components to the command. First, he says, never pay back evil for evil. That's the first one, right? What's his focus here? Paul's focus here is reaction, right? What is the natural response, the natural human response when someone does something evil to you? What's the natural human response? It's to react, to respond, to, to hurt back right? To give back what you've received in the evil that has happened to you. And the Bible is full of stories of revenge, isn't it? Just read the Old Testament. It's replete with stories of revenge. We have the story of Jacob's sons, Simeon and Levi, in Genesis 34. They kill the people of Shechem, the family of Shechem, because of what's happened to their sister. And then we have the story of Samson in the book of Judges. Samson, the biggest train wreck in the Old Testament, right? Uh, Judges 15, what does he do? He, his wife is taken from him, and so he kills a thousand men with the jawbone of a donkey. 
We have David's revenge against Joab and against Shimei who mocked him in 1 Kings 1. We have Joab's revenge against Abner in 2 Samuel 3. There's, there's so many stories of revenge. And what Paul is effectively saying is don't be like those guys. Don't be like them. Yeah, there's stories like that. That doesn't mean they're right. They were evil in doing those things. Every single one of those was unrighteous. Paying back evil for evil is, in fact, sinful. That's the command. Getting revenge is sin. So what should we do instead? When someone sins against you, when someone commits something evil against you, what do you do in response to that? Well, he doesn't tell us here in this verse. It's interesting. But he has already told us in verse 14. Just look up there with me. He says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. How do we respond when someone does something evil to us? Well, we ought to bless them, right? We ought to bless them. We shouldn't pay back their evil on their heads. So our responsibility before God, our command from God is that we would not retaliate when someone sins against us. I think, I think that should actually be obvious, right? I mean, in one sense, it should be obvious because evil is evil no matter why we do it. You can't say, well, I did this evil thing, but it was okay because someone did something to me. Uh, we don't accept that from our children, right? We certainly wouldn't accept that from, from ourselves. We shouldn't, at least, accept that from ourselves. And yet, we're so easy to make, it's so easy for us to make those excuses. We don't have the freedom to be evil for the purpose of retaliation. In other words, what? The ends don't justify the means, right? I got back at them, so it's okay that I did this evil thing. It was all right for me to have that. Just because someone has sinned against us doesn't excuse our sin. And what's interesting here is that Paul gives us the basis for this command in the second half of verse 17, which is the second command he gives us. Look at verse 17 again. He says, never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Then he says this, respect what is right in the sight of all men. And this is point B on your outline, the basis. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. Now, what's interesting here is that word that's, that's translated respect in the New American Standard, it means to, to think beforehand about something, to have some thoughts beforehand about something. And what Paul is telling us to do is to think in advance about what is the right way to respond when someone were, were to commit evil against us, how we ought to respond. And the way that we ought to respond, he says, is what is right in the sight of all men. And that's, an, that's, a, that's something that you probably wouldn't expect. I would expect him to say something like, never repay evil for evil because this is what Christ did. That would make sense to me. But he doesn't say that. He says, respect what is right in the sight of all men. And you might say, well, what's right in the sight of all people? Well, with unbelievers, really nothing, right? They're depraved. They don't understand any of these things, you would think. But what Paul is doing here is taking an Old Testament idea and bringing it into the New Testament, explaining a basis for this. And I want to show you that. Look in Proverbs chapter 3. Flip back there with me. Proverbs chapter 3. Again, turn, it's always good. <clears throat> Proverbs is written by Solomon, and it's really the teachings of David coming through Solomon. And, and he, in chapter 3, he gives this series of couplets, this series of instructions. Uh, in verses 1 and 2, he says, don't forget my instructions. You'll be blessed by them. And then he gives this series of instructions. And there's five sort of couplets that he gives. Uh, verses 3 and 4 is one. Verses 5 and 6 is another. 7 and 8, 9 and 10, and then 11 and 12. There's these pairings of thought that flow through this whole section. And we know Proverbs 3, 5 and 6 probably, right? What is Proverbs 3, 5 and 6? Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding, right? We know that verse. 
But in verses three and four, he does the same thing, another couplet here. Look what he says. He says, do not let kindness and truth leave you. Bind them around your neck, write them on the tablet of your heart so you will find favor and good repute in the sight of God and man. Now that's fascinating. What is he saying? He's telling us that kindness is understood, not just by Christians, but kindness is an understood truth for everybody. Everyone speaks the language of kindness. Everyone understands what it is to be kind to another person. When you act with kindness, even unbelievers understand that that's a good thing. They recognize that. And it's interesting, that word for kindness there is the Hebrew word hesed. It's the word for like loyal care, loyal love. It's what God has for his people. What, what Solomon is saying is be like God in how you respond to other people. Be godly in treating others with kindness. And what he says in verse 4 is, when you do that, what will happen? You will find favor and good repute in the sight of God. This is pleasing to God when we respond kindly to someone who sinned against us. But you also find favor with other people, right? Other people see your response, that response of humility, and they say, wow, that's totally different than what I would have ever thought you would do. That's totally different than what I would expect someone to do when I sin against them. And that idea is actually carried into the New Testament as well. Look over in 1 Peter chapter 3. Turn there with me. 1 Peter chapter 3. This book is full of encouragements about what we do in the face of suffering. And in 1 Peter chapter 3 verse 14, notice what he says. He says, even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. Now, now, who does that sound like? Blessed are those who suffer for the purpose of, for the sake of righteousness. That's the Beatitudes. It's just Peter turning it on its head and repackaging it, right? And then he says this, and do not fear their intimidation. Do not be troubled, right? Don't worry. If someone persecutes you, don't fear. Why? God is in control, right? And he even says that. Look at verse 15. But sanctify, that is set apart Christ as Lord. Jesus is God. So just set him apart as God in your hearts. In other words, what? God is sovereign over this circumstance. When you're suffering, it's not by accident. God isn't in heaven wringing his hands and wondering how to get you out of this bind that you accidentally fell into. It's come from him. And so set Christ aside. Set him apart as Lord and understand that he is God And then he says this, this is so interesting, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. Why would anyone ever ask you to give an account for the hope that's in you? If someone sins against you, you do what's right, and someone sins against you, and you respond and retaliate with evil, no one's going to say, well, what makes you so different? Because you're not different, right? I'm not different if I retaliate. But when someone sins against us and we respond in humility and kindness, what do people say? They say, why did you do that? What's wrong with you? Why are you different? It's not because they hate you, it's because they see that you are responding in kindness. And when they see that kindness, what what do they think? They think, there's something different about that person. They're not the same as me. I would never do this. Something must be inside of them. And they ask, What is this hope that you have that would make it possible for you to not retaliate? What's happening here? We are finding favor in the sight of all people. That's literally what Paul is telling us in chapter 12, verse 17 of Romans. 
When we don't repay evil with evil, the world sees it, they understand that it's right, and they respond to it. I started with the story of Elizabeth Elliot and, and Rachel Saint, and you remember that story. Instead of retaliating and repaying evil for evil, what did they do? They went into the jungle, and they loved those people, and they preached the gospel to them. And in, in Aka Indian culture, in their society, revenge killing was built into the society. You were supposed to take revenge all the time. The right thing to do in their society was to take revenge. If you killed somebody, then someone was going to come for you or one of your family members. It's built into, woven into the fabric of society. And here are these two women whose husbands have been speared to death. And for the Akka, their natural response is, they should be coming here to kill us. And they show up in kindness. And what happens? Thousands of them come to Christ. Thousands of them come to Christ. Why? Because that response is so otherworldly that even in a culture where revenge is woven into the culture, they see it and say, that's right. That's right. That's what ought to happen. And it's not happening in us. In fact, one of the guys who got saved, one of the guys who killed the missionaries and then got saved later, his name is Minkaye, he said this. He said, we acted badly, badly before they brought God's markings to us. That's an amazing sentence. We acted badly, badly before they brought God's markings to us. We're markings. They brought the Bible, right? God's markings. And they brought it to them. And he said, we were bad before that. And then he said, now we walk in his trail. We walk in his path. What is right? We do what is right. Why? Because they came and instead of retaliating, they brought mercy. So this is what God is calling us to. It's a life of not repaying evil for evil. And that reality is based on what is universally understood as right and is built into the consciences of every person. But here's the question. How do we do that? Where, where do we get power to do that? Because you know that feeling. Someone sins against you and you want revenge, don't you? Someone's angry at you and you want to yell back. Someone does something to you and you think to yourself, well, that's not right. I'm going to get my pound of flesh. We want to repay evil for evil. And so this is point three on your outline, faith and fruit in self-control. Now, the reason why I use the term self-control here is because that's exactly what this is. That's exactly what this is. When someone sins against us, it takes a remarkable amount of self-control to pause, to control those things, and to not repay evil with more evil. Our adrenaline is pumping. You know that feeling. All that is inside of you. And of course, as with all the other commands, the power to do this is only found in Jesus, right? It's only found in Christ. We can't do it in our own flesh. It must come from him. Jesus has to empower us to not repay evil for evil. So the question is how? And the point A is faith in Jesus. The only way we can do this is through him. Why do we say that? Well, if you're still in 1 Peter, look at 1 Peter chapter 2 with me. And look at verse 20. It says, For what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure with patience? You've done something evil first and someone treats you harshly. That, it doesn't matter. But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it. This finds favor with God, he says. It's a gracious thing in the sight of God when you do what's right and someone mistreats you, right? Someone does something evil to you when you've done what's right, and he says, that's actually a gracious thing in the sight of God. You say, that's not fair. I don't like those rules, right? 
I don't like the way that that's set up, but look what he says in verse 21. For you have been called for this purpose. What is the purpose of your Christian life? To do what's right and to suffer for it. Isn't that amazing? I mean, that, that's disheartening in one sense, right? Because that's what your whole life is going to be. You're going to do what's right, people are going to do evil to you, and you can't retaliate. You have to love them in response. He says, you are called for this purpose. This is why God saved you. And then look what he says. Since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. He committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. He didn't try to lie his way out of it, right? He didn't repay evil by lying. And while being reviled, while being insulted, he did not revile in return. He didn't yell back at the people who were yelling at him. In fact, the opposite, he prayed for them as they were killing him. And it says, while suffering, he uttered no threats. He didn't, he didn't say, I will vaporize you. He could have. Jesus was holding them together, literally. Hebrews 1 tells us that. And he could have said, stop this or I will kill you all. And it would have been a valid threat. And yet he was silent. He uttered no threats, but he kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Jesus is our perfect example of this. He's our perfect example of it, and this is what we are called to. So how do we follow in his example? How do we walk in the Spirit in such a way that we have self-control? This is crucial. We have to start from a position of faith. We have to start from a position of faith, and specifically faith in the fact that Jesus loves us. (laughs) If you doubt that Jesus loves you, when someone does something evil to you, what will happen? you will instantly respond in anger because you're protecting yourself. You have to protect yourself, and so you'll fight back. If you doubt that Jesus loves you, you will respond in anger because you can't help but respond in anger. But when you believe that Jesus loves you, something changes inside of you. You have something that makes you happy that is totally divorced from the circumstances around you. And that thing that makes you happy is him. So we have to believe that Jesus loves us, and second, we have to believe that he is in perfect control of that circumstance. Listen, there are no accidents in our lives. There are no accidents in our lives. The evil that has been done to you was not by accident. God wasn't trying to stop that person, they just broke through. God was in perfect control of that circumstance. That suffering came to you, not from the person, but ultimately from God. And his perfect sovereignty was over that, and he was loving you in that moment. And if we know that evil is coming to us from him, it's not evil anymore, is it? It becomes a gift, doesn't it? If, if suffering is coming to us from Jesus, it stops being evil and it becomes a gift to us. Remember one of the last things Jesus said before he ascended, Matthew 28, 18, he said, all authority in heaven and on earth is what? Given to me. I have absolute authority in heaven and on earth. All things and everything that happens to you is under his perfect control. There's not one thing that is outside the bounds of his perfect control. So we need to believe that reality. We need to believe that he loves us, and we need to believe that he's sovereign. The evil that's coming to you from the hand of that unbeliever, from the hand of that person in your family, from the hand of that person at work, is not ultimately from that hand. It is given to you from a nail-pierced hand of your Savior. He loves you, and he is sovereign over that circumstance. 
And when we trust those two truths, what happens to us? It changes us, doesn't it? It changes how we respond. It's no longer evil, but it's kind. God is working in us to do something in us. And of course, that's the question, right? That's the question that plagues us in that moment. When someone does something evil to you, what do you ask God? God, why would you allow this to happen? If you love me, why would you cause me to be hurt? Why would you allow this person to do evil to me? If you love me, you could have stopped it, but you didn't stop it. Why? Why are you so unkind to me? And that's the greatest act of unbelief in the world, isn't it? When we believe the truth that Jesus loves us, it pushes against that and says, no, not why did you allow this to happen, but why have you brought this into my life? What are you doing for me through this circumstance? And this brings us to point B, the fruit of that faith. The fruit of that faith. And there's two things here. The first fruit of suffering, of being treated evilly, the first fruit of that is that it sanctifies us. It makes us more like Christ. It changes us. Look at Psalm 119. Flip back there with me. Psalm 119. This is our, this is our Bible Monday verse for this week. <laughs> Look back there. Psalm 119, and look at verse 71. Look at that verse. The psalmist says this. He says, it is good for me that I was afflicted. That sentence should blow your mind. It should blow all of our minds. My suffering was good. And why? Why? That I may learn your statutes. When we suffer, what happens to us? Something negative comes into our lives. What happens to us? We start grasping for what we can do to deal with it, right? And what happens is we start to grasp and we begin to turn to God as true Christians. The Spirit of God in us pushes us to God. He says we learn His statutes. And then look back up in verse 67. Before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now I keep your word. (laughs) Isn't that stunning? Before I suffered, before evil was done to me, I went astray. I, didn't, I turned away from God. But now, because of my suffering, what has happened? I obey. God is doing a remarkable thing in us when we suffer. We grow in obedience to the word of God because of our suffering. In fact, this is how God grows us. <laughs> Spurgeon said, there is no university for a Christian like suffering and trial. There's no university for a Christian like suffering and trial. And so the first fruit of faith is sanctification, conformity into the image of Christ. And why? Because Jesus is our perfect example of this, isn't he? He obeyed to the point of death, even death on a cross. And the second fruit of faith here is the glory of God. It's the glory of God. Listen, how glorious is it for God when we walk in humble kindness when we're mistreated? How glorious for God is that? Stephen read it again, Matthew 5, 16. Let let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. When does he say that? Right after he says, you will be persecuted and you will be blessed. Listen, when you choose to react with self-control instead of repaying evil for evil, who gets glory for that? God gets all the glory for that, doesn't he? Because for we know ourselves, right? We know how we would naturally respond in our flesh. And when we respond in kindness and humility and righteousness, 
It's God working in us. God gets the glory for that. So let me ask you this morning, you husbands, when your wife is angry at you and you have no idea why, but you respond in mercy and kindness to her and you're patient, who gets the glory for that? God does, right? Of course. Because it's not me, it's not us. We know this, don't we? When we respond in humility and kindness, it's not us doing that. It's God who's working in us to cause us to respond in kindness. For you wives, when your husband is selfish and unkind, selfish and unkind, and he mistreats you, and yet you continue to serve him in love and kindness, who gets glory for that? God does. God gets the glory for that. For you kids, when your parents sin against you in anger and you respond in humility and quietness and obedience rather than bitterness, God gets the glory for that. For you who have a place of work where you go to work, when your boss is unkind, when you don't get the promotion that you rightfully deserved, when your coworker lies about you, when evil is done against you and you respond in humility, who gets the glory for that? God does. The light that is shown before unbelievers is the light of non-retaliation. It's the light of love for our enemies. That's what God wants us to do. And so we need to believe this truth about the love and sovereignty of Jesus. We need to trust that he loves us in those moments. And we need to believe that he's in control. And then we need to not repay evil for evil. This is our sanctification, isn't it? This is our change to trust him more and more every day. And it is his glory because he is honored by it. And remarkably, God uses this as the means for the salvation of other people. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for Christ, Lord, our perfect example. Lord, it was given to us. He was given to us. Lord, he suffered in our place. He paid the price for our sins. Lord, he has done this Lord, for a perfect example that we would follow after. Lord, we know that he is in control of all things. Lord, that every circumstance in our lives is coming to us from his absolutely sovereign hand. Lord, he holds all things together by the word of his power. Lord, all authority in heaven and on earth is his. And so, Lord, our circumstances of life, Lord, the evil that comes against us is not from any other source ultimately but him. And Lord, we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that he loves us because he's demonstrated his love for us once and for all by dying for us while we were yet sinners. So Lord, we praise you for those two truths, but Lord, I pray that you would help us to take them and believe them in the moment of evil. When evil is done against us, Lord, that we would believe these things in that moment, Lord, that we would cling to him by faith in that moment. Lord, that we would look more like him in how we respond to him and to others. Lord, that we would trust Jesus and that we would love our enemies. Lord, that we would not repay evil for evil. And Lord, that this would be, as Paul said, what is right in the sight of all men. Lord, that people would see our good works and they would glorify you. And Lord, I pray even specifically, even thinking of the outreach meeting today, Lord, I pray that our greatest outreach would be our love. Lord, that we would love those who sin against us. That we would love 
those who commit evil against us. Lord, that we would not retaliate and that they would come to know Christ as their Savior. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your Son. In his name we pray. Amen.